Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 24, 1 Kings chapter 14. Well, we uh, folded our tents and went home last week. After reading about King Jeroboam of Israel, utterly abandoning Jehovah God by means of creating and worshipping golden calf gods and telling his subjects, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt, O Israel. In other words, he renounced his allegiance to Jehovah. He switched it to these calf gods. Now I think it's important to make one thing vitally clear because it has great bearing on the life of a modern believer. Jeroboam's renunciation of Jehovah did not mean that he had quit believing in him. It didn't mean that Jeroboam woke up one morning and came to the conclusion that Jehovah didn't exist. He certainly continued to believe that Jehovah was alive and well. He just didn't trust him as his own God any longer and turned instead to things he contrived in his own mind and heart, things that better served his agenda, his purposes. The Lord God calls that abandonment of him. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. Good for you. The demons believe it too. The thought makes them shudder with fear. Even demons believe in God. They just give their allegiance to another, no matter how irrational that might seem to us. So Christians need to understand that in God's eyes, abandoning Him isn't about committing sins. It's also not necessarily about becoming an atheist. Abandoning God, renouncing His Lordship of our lives, means that we have determined to walk away from our relationship with Him, choosing something else instead. And when such a thing happens, in our own free wills, it's a dangerous place to be. Because if we haven't come to our senses, repented and returned to God, then if we die during that time, we will die as the unrighteous dead. James, half-brother of Jesus, head of the believers in Jerusalem, said it this way in James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if one of you wanders away from the truth and someone causes him to return, you should know that whoever turns a sinner from his wandering path will save him from death. And it will cover many sins. The Lord responded to Jeroboam's abandonment of him by sending a person that chapter 13 refers to as an Ish Elohim, a man of God, to bait El, to confront Jeroboam as he inaugurated his newly built golden calf altar. 
he was going to burn incense upon it. Further, this is this now wicked king used this occasion to invent and declare a new holiday in the eighth month of the year that began on the 15th day, the full moon, that no doubt was to replace and to mimic the God-ordained Feast of Sukkot that was to take place on the 15th day of the previous month. Well, after a brief drama in which the king tried to have the Ish Elohim arrested for daring to publicly denounce his actions, but the king's arm was supernaturally paralyzed and then healed, and the altar he was about to burn incense on inexplicably split, and the ashes of the earlier sacrifices spilled all over the ground, the king tried to make amends by flattering the man of God, offering him hospitality. The man of God refused, saying the Lord had prohibited him from it. An old prophet of Baal, who lived in Bethel, wanted to enjoy the company of this Ish Elohim, whom he viewed as a colleague of the profession. And so he found him on the road as he was returning to Judah, and by lying to him, he enticed him to come back to Bethel. The lie was that supposedly an angel visited him, told him that God had rescinded his instructions to the Ish Elohim that prohibited him from having food or drink anywhere near Bethel. The man of God believed him. He partook of the old prophet's hospitality. But then the Ish Elohim received the startling oracle from God that for his disobedience he would now die and his corpse would not be buried in his family grave plot. It happened as predicted. The man of God was attacked by a lion on the way home and he died. Now Jeroboam, knowing all that had happened, still refused to give up the calf worship and to repent. His heart was now hard. It was impenetrable towards Jehovah. And this was after his youthful training in knowing and worshiping the God of Israel at the temple in Jerusalem. He was without excuse. Let's pick up in chapter 14 from there. Chapter 14 of 1 Kings. Page 387 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. At this time, Aviah, the son of Yeruvam, fell ill. Yeruvam said to his wife, Please, come, disguise yourself, so that you won't be recognized as Jeroboam's wife, and go to Shiloh. Ahiah, the prophet, is there, the one who said that I would be king over these people. Take with you ten loaves of bread, some cakes, and a jug of honey. Go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. Jeroboam's wife did this, and she set out, went to Shiloh, and arrived at the house of Achiah. Now Achiah could not see, because his eyes were dim with age. Adonai had told Achiah, Jeroboam's wife is on her way to you to ask about her son, who is ill. 
You are to tell her thus and thus, and moreover when she comes, she will be pretending that she's another woman. And when Achia heard the sound of her feet, as she came in the door, he said, Enter, wife of Jeroboam. Why pretend you're someone else? I've been given bad news for you. Go, tell Jeroboam that this is what Adonai says. I raised you up from among the people, made you prince over my people Israel, tore the kingdom away from the dynasty of David, and gave it to you. In spite of this, you have not been like my servant David, who obeyed my meat's vote, my commandments, followed me with all his heart, so that he could do only what I regarded as right. Rather, you've committed more evil than anyone before you. You went and made other gods for yourself, images of cast metal, to make me angry. But you shoved me behind your back. Therefore, I'll now bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I'll cut off, cut off every male of Jeroboam's line, whether a slave or free in Israel. I'll sweep away the house of Jeroboam as completely as when someone sweeps away dung until it's all gone. If someone from the line of Jeroboam dies in the city, the dogs will eat him. If he dies in the countrysides, the vulture will eat him. For Adonai has said it. So get up and go home, and when your feet enter the city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn him. They will bury him. He is the only one of Jeroboam's line who will lie in a grave, because he alone in the house of Jeroboam has in him an element of good towards Adonai, the God of Israel. Moreover, Adonai will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will at that time cut off the house of Jeroboam. And what will God do now? Adonai will strike Israel until it shakes like a reed in the water. He'll uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their ancestors and scatter them beyond the Euphrates River because they made sacred poles for themselves, thus making Adonai angry. He will give up on Israel because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he committed himself, and with which he made Israel sin as well. Jeroboam's wife got up, left, and went to Tirzah. The moment she reached the threshold of the house, the boy died. All Israel buried him and mourned him in keeping with the word of Adonai spoken through his servant Achiah the prophet. Other activities of Jeroboam, how he fought, how he ruled, are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Jeroboam's reign lasted 22 years, and then he slept with his ancestors, and Nadav, his son, became king in his place. Rehavam, the son of Shlomo, was reigning in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to rule, and he ruled 17 years in Jerusalem. And the city Adonai had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to bear his name. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. Now Judah did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. They made him angry because of their sins, which were worse than any of their ancestors had committed. For they erected high places, standing stones, sacred poles, on every high hill, under every green tree. Also, there were male and female cult prostitutes in the land attached to these shrines, doing all the disgusting things which the nations did that Adonai had expelled ahead of the people of Israel. In the fifth year of King Rechavam's, in the fifth year of King Rechavam, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. He took the treasures in the house of Adonai and the treasures in the royal palace. He took everything. <laughs> 
including the gold shields Shlomo had made. To replace them, King Rehoboam made shields of bronze, which he entrusted to the commanders of the contingent guarding the gate to the royal palace. And whenever the king went to the house of Adonai, the guard would get the shields, and later they would return them to the guard room. Other activities of Rehoboam and all his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. But there was continual war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam slept with his ancestors and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. His mother's name was Nemah the Ammonite. Then Avyam, his son, became king in his place. Well, things begin to speed up from here on in the book of Kings. Up through the first 13 chapters, the entire time has been devoted to primarily dealing with Solomon. Only a little more than a chapter was about David. And just in the last few passages, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The time period covered thus far in the book of Kings is perhaps only 50 years. But during the next eight chapters that completes the first book of Kings, we're going to cover 80 years and meet several more kings of Israel and Judah. By the time we complete the second book of Kings, about 250 more years will have passed until the last king of Israel makes his appearance. Now the thing that gets a bit difficult at this point is that we have two separate and independent Israelite kingdoms to deal with. The northern one called Israel, the southern one called Judah. Since each has their own king, we find the coming chapters will give us information that helps to kind of synchronize the reigns of the northern kings to the southern kings. Thus we have two separate lists of Israelite kings operating simultaneously. For instance, we find that during the reign of Jeroboam over the northern kingdom called Israel, there will be a succession of three kings over Judah, Rehoboam, then Aviam, and then Asa. Since we're going to be dealing with a number of kings and relatively few biblical chapters, then necessarily the information recorded about each king is brief and condensed. In fact, the ancient editors of the book of Kings will mention several times that more extensive information about the several Israelite kings can be found in two other books, both of them non-biblical, both of them lost to history. Okay. The annals of the kings of Israel and the annals of the kings of Judah. In fact, it's likely that the bulk of information that we have on the Israelite kings in these two books of the kings was gleaned from those now lost ancient archives. The opening words of verse 1, at that time aren't there to give us a precise time frame except to say this was after the Beit El affair and that Jeroboam was still firmly entrenched in his state of apostasy. Now although Jeroboam didn't realize it, the Lord had already decided to rip the throne from him because he broke the one condition that had been placed upon him when the prophet Achiah of Shiloh 
told him that the throne would be his and his dynasty would endure if he walked in God's ways. In fact, the curse that that Ish Elohim from Judah had put on that gross altar of Bethel only included a veiled implication that there was a a curse upon Jeroboam as well. Jeroboam didn't seem to recognize that. So now some indeterminate time later, Jeroboam's son Avia was critically ill and Jeroboam and his wife were full of worry. Did the Lord cause this illness? Perhaps. Because although the formal curse upon Jeroboam's family wouldn't be pronounced on earth for a few more days, it had already been established in the heavenlies. What is interesting to me is the boy's name. Avia. My father is God. Yah is a shortened name or reference to the God of Israel. So either this son was born before Jeroboam went completely spiritually insane or some modicum of Jehovah worship remained in his heart or maybe it was just done to appease the people of his kingdom. So rather typically for that era, Jeroboam and his wife sought to learn if their sick son would survive. Now since medical care in that era was based more on superstitions than anything that actually had a beneficial physical effect, the issue was not what actions might be taken to make their son better. Rather the concern was simply to know in advance if their son would ultimately live or die. Therefore the king sent the boy's mother to a seer to inquire about it. And verse 2 explains that the seer of interest was Ahiah, the prophet of Shiloh, who had pronounced God's oracle to Jeroboam some years earlier, that he would be the king over the northern tribes. And of course his prediction turned out to be correct. So obviously if Jeroboam wanted an answer he could believe, this was his man. But the king orders his wife to go to the prophet in disguise. Why? There are several theories by the rabbis on this. They mostly revolve around Jeroboam's embarrassment at seeking out the prophet who had pronounced his ascension to the throne with the warning to be true to Jehovah. Of course, the degree of his failure can't be overstated. Instead of pious obedience to the Lord, the king became one of the worst idolaters of his era. He had renounced Jehovah as his God. He had turned his people away from worshiping at the only authorized temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, he wants to hear from the true prophet of Jehovah about the fate of his son. Would the prophet even receive his wife if he knew who she was? To help with this disguise, we're told that she takes ten loaves of bread, some honey, and something called cakes in the complete Jewish Bible, which other translations say are crumbs. 
The Hebrew word being dealt with is nihud. And it's a, a general word that means some kind of hard, crusty food. The word cake, for modern Westerners, gives us an entirely wrong idea. Okay, for us, a cake is some kind of luscious dessert. But in the Bible, the word cake operates more like in the term a cake of soap. In other words, it's just a description of the shape or the way the food is bound together. In the Bible, we'll hear of someone bringing out a cake of raisins to eat. All this means is the raisins were tightly packed together as, as the usual means to store them. Bringing a gift to a prophet as payment for his services was customary. The gift that was being brought by Jeroboam's wife was appropriate for an average Israelite to present, but was hardly lavish that would be indicative of the wealth and station of a king. That was on purpose in hopes that the deception would seem all the more real to those who saw her coming and going to Shiloh and of course trying to fool Ahia. Well, it didn't work. As it turned out, a disguise wasn't even needed because the prophet was almost blind anyway. But not only that, the Lord wasn't about to let Jeroboam pull a fast one on Ahia or benefit in any way from the Lord's faithful prophet. That neither Jeroboam nor his wife seemed to know that Ahia was virtually blind makes it clear they hadn't seen him or inquired about him in a substantial amount of time. And that whoever Jeroboam was using for his personal seers, which every king employed, Ahia had been snubbed. And in verse 5 we read that the Lord came to Ahia and told him that Jeroboam's wife was on her way to see him. What the visit was about and also told him what he was to say to her. And in verse 6, Ahia wasted no time in letting her know that he not only knew who she was but what she wanted. But then he immediately issued an official curse upon Jeroboam and his family and did so with a brutally frank economy of words. I mean, one can only imagine Mrs. Jeroboam wondering how she was going to communicate these devastating words to her regal husband who wasn't used to being spoken to in this manner. Well, here's the gist of what the Lord communicated to Jeroboam through Ahia. One, you were a mere commoner. You weren't of a royal line. But I elevated you from among your people. I made you king over ten tribes of my people. Second, I did this because Solomon, his branch of David's line proved to not be worthy of ruling over the entire kingdom of God on earth. Next, I gave you an amazing opportunity and you failed. You were supposed to be like David, but instead, you've taken the monarchy of Israel to new lows. In fact, you've acted more wickedly than any Israelite king before you. Fourth, 
Not only did you go after other gods, you created your own. You led your people to worship them. Fifth, you put me behind your back. That is, you showed me the greatest contempt. Sixth, therefore in consequence the house of Jeroboam will be terminated. All the influential male descendants that could have ruled instead will die like dogs. Seventh, I shall cause the male descendants of Jeroboam to die violently and their remains to be treated as though they were excrement and not human corpses to be dealt with respectfully. Therefore, any of your male offspring who die within city walls will be eaten by packs of unclean dogs. Any who die outside the city walls will be eaten by unclean scavenger birds. Ninth, Jehovah will anoint a new king who will eliminate the rule of the house of Jeroboam. And finally, worst of all, because Jeroboam did all these things, his ten northern tribes are going to be torn out by their roots. They're going to be exiled from their land to a foreign place beyond the Euphrates. In verse 13, the Lord makes a partial exception to this awful curse he's issued upon the house of Jeroboam. It is that although his ill son will die, he will be buried with honor and properly mourned by the people of Israel. This is in direct contrast to all other male descendants of Jeroboam who won't have any burial at all. And this is going to happen because Aviah has been found by God to have, it says, something good in him towards the Lord. Scholars, Jewish and Gentile, have wrestled with this difficult phrase. In Hebrew it says that this son, Tov Debar El Yehoveh, most literally, plainly, it means a good word towards Yehovah. Now, I'm sure I have nothing more to offer than these great Bible translators regarding this phrase. But if the literal and the plain sense is usually the best, then this is saying that in some explained way, the son Aviah, who by the way has a godly name, said good or beautiful words concerning Yehovah, thus indicating that he held the Lord in high regard. The ancient sages say that however one wants to take this, it's obvious that if Avia looked to Yehovah and his father Jeroboam looked to his own golden calf gods, then their relationship must have been a tense one. Not unlike between the godly Abraham and his father Terach, a peddler of idols. Now in some ways, the boy passing away peacefully in bed, family at his side, and having him get an honorable burial was a good example of God's chesed, his kindness, his blessing to him. Because Avia didn't have to experience all the coming horrors, all the evils and violence that were about to befall the whole rest of the family.
Now a reasonable question is, why will all the people of the ten northern tribes be eventually exiled to what will turn out to be Assyria? Because they have in less than one generation, less than one generation, taken up the worship of the Canaanites and rejected the worship of Jehovah. They have erected Asherah. They've given themselves over to the Canaanite gods. And why did they do that? Was it because they were oppressed? They were forced to do it? No. It was because of Jeroboam's wicked and failed leadership. Verse 16 says, He, God, will give up on Israel because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he committed himself and with which he made Israel sin as well. Time for a needed pause. To get kind of a panoramic view of where we've arrived. For several lessons now, I have made a theme of the consequences of bad leadership. So that you don't think I'm somehow referring to any particular modern day national leader. Rest assured, I'm not. Actually, I'd ask you this. Is there any good and godly leader of a nation in the world today? Now, while some are certainly better than others, in my opinion, none measure up to any reasonable biblical standard. And thus, virtually every nation on earth of any consequence is in a state of decline, darkness, and confusion. And this is the inevitable and natural result of refusing to follow the ways of the Lord. The same thing happens to us as individuals if we refuse to trust God. Now, for reasons I don't understand, the Lord has created many followers and only a few leaders. God's Word demonstrates from Genesis to Revelation that humankind was created with the inherent need to be led. This is why we have the book of Judges to show what happens when there's no leaders. Why we must have a king. But even leaders need leaders above them. The ultimate earthly leader still needs direction from and accountability to the Creator King. Leaders at every level are responsible for how they lead their people and they're going to be judged accordingly by God. Yet the followers aren't without responsibility. Had the people of the ten northern Israelite tribes risen up against Jeroboam, refused his perverted gods, his filthy worship practices, as they should have. And had they desired Jehovah with a whole heart, which they did not, perhaps their exile would not have been ordained because Jeroboam would have been removed. Jeroboam could not have done what he did without the consent of the people. Or at least the people not strongly resisting. Why must Messiah Yeshua return to earth and have a throne here? 
Why can't He just rule us from heaven? Why, since our mere trust in His faithful work on the cross is sufficient to redeem us, is it necessary for Him to physically come back, fight a war, and rule His people with a rod of iron from His temple in the Millennial Kingdom? Why is that? If the good and the righteous are going to be supernaturally raptured away, before His return, why would not God, with but a thought, simply terminate every wicked person on this planet? Christ must return because we, mankind, even redeemed mankind, need visible and tangible leadership. It's part of who we are. It's part of how He made us. Perhaps that will change with the new heaven and the new earth that comes after the millennial kingdom, but I suspect it won't. This is why leaders bear such responsibility before the Lord. And why when you willingly or passively submit yourself to a national leader, a local leader, a church or a synagogue leader, who you know is not godly, not truthful, not even anointed to be a leader, nor good for you. You and I bear responsibility for that choice, and we're going to suffer divine consequences. So now the book of Kings shows us that while a king is needed to lead God's people, It's not the world's contorted definition of a king that we must have. Rather, it's the Lord's ideal of a king. A king who rules based on the commandments of God. A king who recognizes that his job is to serve the people and not be served by them. A king who accepts that he is subject to God's laws, just as those who he rules over. A king who rules in power and love, in mercy and in justice, in kindness and in severity when it's called for. All who ruled Israel to this point have not only failed, but it seems as though each successive round of new kings are worse than the previous. Thus the book of Judges showed us that we must have kingly leadership. We cannot rule ourselves. The book of Kings shows any old king won't do. Only a king who bears God's attributes is capable of success. The book of the prophets tells us that this king that the world needs is the Messiah. The New Testament tells us who this Messiah King is. He is Yeshua of Nazareth. And as it turns out, this Messiah not only has godly attributes, He is God. In verse 17, as Jeroboam's distraught wife comes home and her heart-weary foot touches the threshold, her treasured son breathes his last. And as foretold, he was buried in honor, and all Israel, meaning the ten northern tribes in this case, 
mourned over him. And then in typically abbreviated biblical fashion, we're told that Jeroboam ruled for 22 years and died. He was followed by his son Nadav. Jeroboam had ruled from 928 B.C. to 907 B.C. The scene now makes a sudden shift from northern to southern Israel and to the king of Judah, Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And beginning in verse 21, we find out that even though Rehoboam wasn't nearly as bad as his counterpart up in the north, he too was a major disappointment. And while we find that the story of the northern tribes has become one of an unrelenting downward spiral into darkness and idolatry, the kingdom of Judah seemed to alternate between valleys and peaks of apostasy and then faithfulness. Unfortunately, Rehoboam represents one of those valleys. And it seems as though the placing of his mother's name here is meant to implicate her as part of the reason for the spiritual decline of Rehoboam and therefore of Judah. She was Nehemiah of Ammon. In other words, she was not a Hebrew. But rather, she was one of the many foreigners that Shlomo had married and thus her pagan influence on Rehoboam had a great deal to do with his failures. Now interestingly in verse 22 it says that the people of Judah did evil in God's eyes and that this greatly angered him. I say interestingly because Rehoboam's not blamed here. And thus it's typical among the rabbis to say that he wasn't a sinner at all. Perhaps they should consult the parallel account of this era in 2 Chronicles 12. 2 Chronicles 12.1 says, But in time, after Rehoboam had consolidated his rulership and had become strong, he and all Israel abandoned the Torah of Adonai. And in Chronicles 12.14, he did what was evil because he had not set his heart on seeking Adonai. So here it is that Rehoboam abandoned the Torah. He stopped seeking the Lord and of course all of his subjects in Judah followed him into the spiritual abyss. Bad leadership strikes again. It harms everyone concerned. The citizens of Judah built Asherah, Matzabot, and Bamot. That is, they built totem poles to the fertility goddess, memorial pillars to other gods, and high places, unauthorized altars for sacrifices. But in verse 24, it got even worse. They committed something that involves sexual immorality that the complete Jewish Bible and most other translations call either male prostitution or sodomy. Now since this is a subject that um, comes up from time to time in the Bible and Christians especially bring it up considering today's sexually immoral climate let's talk about it for a moment. First, despite what our English translations might say, the word sodomy, or even prostitute, 
is not there in the Hebrew. What it says is that there was Kadesh in the land that was like what all the Gentile nations did that was an abomination to God. And again, despite what you might even read in your concordances, the word Kadesh merely means consecrated, sacred, or set apart. That's all it means. It doesn't of itself have anything to do with prostitution or sexual immorality. And whereas various translations will also add the word male, sometimes additionally include female, those two words aren't there either. So what we have in our English Bibles is what's called a dynamic translation. It is taking a set of Hebrew words and trying to figure out what it means in the contextual setting because when taken literally word for word the sense of that sentence cannot obviously be that there was sacredness in the land of Judah and it was this that equated to the abominations of the Gentiles. Makes no sense. The bottom line is that it's generally agreed that what's being referred to are sexual acts that are somehow associated with religious ritual. That there were Kadesh, okay, sacred, set-apart people who did abominable things in service to the temple. It could have been fertility rituals that involved sexual intercourse. could have been prostitution as a means to collect money for the temple. It was well known then. It could have been something else entirely. It's simply not known. Whatever it was, it was terrible in the eyes of the Lord. It was something that pagan Gentiles did. Therefore, the Hebrews should not do it. And it happened in Judah, and it happened in conjunction with supposedly honoring God. But let's understand... Whatever occurred was done in the name of Jehovah by Israelites who thought they were doing a good deed. No doubt they were sincere. Probably they wanted to please God. Of course, the Second Chronicles 12 explains they had abandoned the Torah. So they followed their own hearts and minds and did what seemed good to them. The religious establishment obviously condoned it, probably even encouraged it and supervised it. And probably at least partly because it brought in revenue to the temple. Those involved certainly did not think they were doing wrong. But because they didn't know God's commandments, they had nothing to measure their behavior against. What was the consequence for this apostasy? Verse 25 says that Shishak, king of Egypt, took his army up to Judah. He attacked Jerusalem. He carried off the treasures of the temple. He also took all the exquisite and enormously valuable golden shields that King Solomon had made for his palace. This was the same pharaoh who had granted political asylum to Jeroboam. 
Interestingly, we also don't see him taking over Judah. Apparently, he was satisfied to demonstrate Egypt's ability to project its power and then go home with a fortune taken from Solomon's temple and palace. Rehoboam replaced the golden shields with much less valuable bronze ones. They were used by his personal bodyguard, especially on the occasion when in some type of royal procession, Rehoboam would go up to the temple. Now, no doubt we are meant to take from this episode that Shishak's attack was permitted by Jehovah because of what Rehoboam and Judah had sunk to. Now, to end this chapter, we're told that Rehoboam and Jeroboam warred all of their days. Indeed, Rehoboam had mustered an enormous army of 180,000 men with the intention of attacking Jeroboam. But the prophet Shemiah told Rehoboam not to do this because the secession of the northern tribes from the Union was God's doing. This so-called never-ending state of war has been disputed by scholars because there's no record of constant warfare between the two kingdoms. No doubt this is merely meant to be taken in a common way of speaking that indicates that there was hostility between the two all during this era. You know, it'd be very similar to modern times when North and South Korea are technically at war. But they haven't had a serious military battle in a very long time. Okay. Of course, they remain immensely hostile towards one another and the situation is always tense. So most of the time, Jeroboam and Rehoboam were engaged in a kind of cold war, but at times military battles undoubtedly erupted. Well, finally, Rehoboam died, and his son, Aviam, took the throne. Rehoboam had reigned from 928 to 911 BC, a period of 17 years. He was a relatively young man when he died, probably barely 40 years old. Jeroboam, on the other hand, was still alive, still in power when Rehoboam passed. We'll begin chapter 15 next week.